0: Hello everyone, I'm Ryan, the host of the Maximise podcast for Gen Z. On this podcast, we talk about mental health and all the other issues that relate to it. We're speaking to new guests weekly who are breaking taboos, sharing their own personal story and also engaged in vital areas of the mental health landscape. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Maximize Podcast for Gen Z, joined here by Katie matthews and a Young Business Person of the Year, 2021-2022, and founder of the Mind Tribe UK. Welcome Katie, how are you?
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Not not bad at all. Looking forward no. to the episode, Ryan.
0: No worries, the pleasure is mine. So I suppose, just beginning, what sort of, uh, like say, events and circumstances and Journey kind of took you to finding the Mayan tribe UK? Yeah,
1: so that's kind of a complex question. Always. <laughs> exactly. No, a few different kind of things happened. Obviously, you can hear I'm English. So I moved to Northern Ireland when I was 19 to go to Queens and did a degree in English with linguistics. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously decided after I graduated that I was going to stay. Over here and then set up my first business when I was 23. So I graduated when I was 22. And, you know, I'm always very open kind of speaking about mental illness and, you know, my challenges and struggles with depression and anxiety. So I was de- diagnosed with depression when I was 17 and anxiety then when I was 22. And basically when I graduated, my mental health just took like a, a real bad kind of downturn. I started in a job in Belfast and I was only in there a month. And then it got to the point where I couldn't, you know, leave the house. I was having panic attacks, couldn't, couldn't go out on my own. And, you know, I was having panic attacks on the train, going to work. And it just became kind of intangible, you know, to try and try and do that. So, sorry, this is like the most long winded answer, isn't it? To... <laughs> I'm like, here's my whole life story, Ryan. Oh, no,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, please, please, please. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what I love on the, on the show. Like if I have plenty of them, it's great, really great.
1: Yeah. So, as I say, I then decided, right, well, I'm going to work for myself instead then. And I decided I set up a tuition company. So, I was tutored myself in maths from the age of 17, sorry, from the age of 7 to 19. Mm. And I kind of really saw the, the impact and the power that one person could kind of make on my education, my confidence. And I thought, wow, okay, I love maths. I've got an A level in maths. I've got a degree in English. I really love, you know, supporting young people. Why don't I look at doing a bit of tuition? So I started that. And then within three years, a company had kind of really expanded. I had 45 staff working for me, a mixture of kind of paid staff and volunteers and just invested in a learning center. And then essentially the wheels came off. That's kind of the the easiest way of describing it, I suppose. My mental health took a really bad kind of downturn. You know, I was absolutely exhausted Ryan to be honest you know I was working 100 hours a week and you know that's not sustainable when you're doing that for months and months and months and you already live with mental illness and all this and it just got too much and eventually in the December so it was the 14th of December 2018 I actually had to file for bankruptcy so I was only 26 at the time so obviously that was like you know a big kind of change or a change is probably an understatement Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Huge, hugely challenging time. And, you know, it was within the period of bankruptcy then that I decided I wanted to set up the Mind Tribe UK. So everybody thought, oh my goodness, have you lost your mind? <laughs> You've just been declared bankrupt. I'd been bankrupt for about six to eight weeks when I decided, right, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to set up another company, you know, become a sole, a sole trader this time rather than a limited company and just work for myself. And yeah, it was kind of, as I say, in that time of that initial period of being bankrupt. Obviously, my mental health, you know, was really, really bad. I was really struggling, you know, with with kind of everything, you know, like, it feels as if the rug's just been pulled out from underneath you, you know, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've lost everything, essentially. And it was in that time, as I say, that I kind of really started to do a lot of deep work around myself and healing and kind of exploring, you know, some of the trauma that had been experienced throughout my life, different events and things that we can go into if you want to afterwards. And also then deciding, right, well, what do I want my future to actually look like here? Because it got to the point where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, I, I was like considering taking my own life you know apologies you know i know that's quite kind of deep to start off with <laughs> but not at all not at all you know that that is you know that's that's being totally honest that's how i felt and it was in that time as i say that i did that kind of deep healing work i went to the specialized trauma counseling yeah. i did a lot of work around kind of personal development professional development and looking for opportunities where i could get like free training essentially because obviously i wasn't in a position to pay for things yeah You know, I had Freggle, didn't have two pence to rub together, you know, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was like, right, what can I kind of avail of that's going to, one, build my confidence back up, two, build my knowledge, and three, potentially give me something that I can use moving forward. And then it was kind of sitting down one day, I was like, right, what do I want to do with my life? And that's when I essentially arrived at the Mind Tribe UK. Because I thought, well, I've got all the lived experience of, you know, living with mental health, mental illness, trauma, having to really embrace a growth mindset and resilience. And then I thought, you know, I love working with people. I love teaching. I love training and facilitation. And I like to think I'm a friendly person. <laughs> so I thought, you know, why why don't I look at doing something like that? And then I kind of sat down and like fleshed that out a little bit. You know, what would that look like? What could I offer? What would my kind of areas of expertise be? What did I need upskilling in? And yeah, it just kind of went from there. And that's been four and a half years now. So it'll be five years in March. March. Well, I sort of came up with the idea around February, but officially started trading in the April of 2019. Yeah. So it'll be officially five years next April. So it's been going from strength to strength to strength. If I could put my teeth back in. And I've been absolutely you know loving it i've even you know just recording this today i've come in from delivering a full day of training down in belfast so that was the long way of getting to that's how i set up the mind drive uk
0: (laughs) no wonderful thank you so much for for taking the time out to 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 share with me that's a really really wonderful story in many ways it's it's a lot to you know whatever you said to you 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 went you, you declared bankruptcy at 26? Because normally, whenever you hear people like declaring bankrupt, it's always like someone who's like obviously a little bit older. Maybe they've had like business for a while. I, so you associate it culturally with images of people who are like maybe like 40, 50, 60. But you know, like 26 is such a young age. And I'm, was there anything that kind of going through that, not just the bankruptcy, but was there anything that kind of going through all of that and all of the things that you experienced, the traumas? Was there anything that they kind of taught you that, you know, when you reflected on them, that you maybe didn't know before you reflected on them anyway. So like, because sometimes whenever I'm talking to people about, you know, like their journeys, their, their traumas, and you know, sort of like all the kind of key things they went through in their life, sometimes they say like it was kind of like. You, sometimes the language of like is used of, Oh, it showed me this. It showed it put me on this path, and but. Well, was it, does that apply to you in any way? Was there anything it kind of did show you whenever you reflected on it that you maybe, something you maybe took for granted throughout it or didn't really think about, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, it, to be honest, when I look back now, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really odd <laughs> because obviously it was also one of the worst things that ever happened to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as you say, it, it really taught me so much. And the main thing it taught me was it's okay to ask for help. Because, you know, I always had in my head that I had to be strong and resilient and do everything by myself. And that, you know, I couldn't ask for help because it it meant that I was being weak or that I didn't know what I was doing or that I wasn't good enough to be in business or that I wasn't qualified enough. And it really taught me that, you know, the, the value of having that support network around me and being able to just say, Do you know what? I do need help with this. I didn't know what I was doing and I did need help. That was from obviously both the personal side of it in terms of, you know, mental illness and trauma, but also the business side. You know, I'm not going to know everything at 26 and I don't have to of pretend to not. know everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You know, and and that was kind of one of the big things in that, you know, I felt as if I had to kind of put on this facade almost, you know, of like, nope, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. I've got it all under control. You know, I'm smashing it. I'm living life. I'm loving it. But on the inside, I was in turmoil, you know, because I was so worried about what other people would think, you know, oh, who does this wee girl think she is, you know, in business? No, thinking she knows what she's doing that. I was so almost like paralyzed by, I suppose, where it was, you know, I didn't want to reach out and ask for help. I didn't want to try and get kind of support, both personal and business. Because I was so concerned about what other people would think of me. And, you know, it got to the point where it was like, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what other people think. At the end of the day, people are always going to have opinions. People probably have their, you know, their their own opinions on me now. And that's fine. You know, everybody's going to think what they want to at the end of the day. Yeah. But, you know, as I say, the the biggest thing that I kind of took away from it was the power of having that support network. And really you know kind of taking control if you like that asking for help isn't a sign of weakness there's, there's real kind of power in making yourself voluntarily vulnerable and going do you know what yes I do need help with this or I don't know what I'm doing or this is one of my shortcomings or kind of my areas for development I don't like to say weakness as we say areas for development so <laughs> you know just recognizing that that was okay for me to kind of be myself be authentic and not feel as if I had to try and live up to other people's standards.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. That what you just described there is very much in line with a lot of what you know. Some of the other guests and people, just in in general life, like have kind of spoke to me about whenever we're kind of discussing this kind of topic. It's kind of like what I what I hear kind of a lot is that these sorts of experiences, and it probably applies to myself as well. To be honest, like whenever I reflect upon it, it's like. The experiences almost stop you from lying to yourself in a way, you know, I think one of the the themes that kind of comes up is, you know, like I was committed to like this vision of myself that I didn't really want, but I thought other people would want, you know, I was, you know, I was chasing this when I didn't really want it, but say my parents wanted me to chase it, you know, so it's like this, this theme of kind of like, like you, you just said at the end or, you know, like your own authentic sort of person and self kind of forcing itself into your reality in a way through mm-hmm. those symptoms through those you know breakdowns and it's sort of it begs a lot of questions doesn't it because i think like a lot of people kind of go it just shows you how many of us you know go about and many of us at least have long periods where we're essentially kind of lying to ourselves to to fit in mm-hmm. with what's around us i think that starts so early like i mean it it starts you know your so the whole process of socialization and being socialized is mm-hmm. to essentially lie to yourself in some ways like for a lot of people and I think that's kind of, you know, to lie to yourself in a way that's, you know, that enables you to fit into society and engage other people who are also lying to themselves too a lot of the time. And I, it's it feels like that sometimes, I think, you know.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's kind of it's almost like twofold in that there is an element of you maybe not lying to yourself as such. That might be kind of a bit extreme to say, but maybe hiding from yourself and mm. mm. that you it can be scary to kind of dig down and go, who am I at my core? What do I value? Who do I want to be? You know, how do I want to behave? Who do I want to become? But sometimes, you know, it it would be fair to say that, yes, we do lie to ourselves, you know, in that we, we sometimes tell ourselves things that aren't true, I suppose. But a lot of that, I think, comes from that fear of judgment that that fear of other people's perceptions of us and as you say it starts at a really young age you know from from when we're really little we're always looking externally for other people's approval and I think that's something that kind of can be quite hard to shake yeah because we spend our whole lives you know trying to please our parents or our caregivers teachers siblings friends Mm -hmm. uh, coaches you know we've always got somebody that we're trying to kind of impress or somebody that we're trying to make make proud essentially you know and we always yeah. have to we we always find ourselves kind of looking externally for that validation yeah. whereas we're not really taught about inner validation and that's obviously completely linked with our self-confidence mm-hmm. and our ability to be resilient and our ability to to kind of overcome challenges and still find our authentic selves within that you know and I know it's kind of it's almost like a throw-around phrase at the moment you know like oh I'll be your authentic self but <laughs> but it is true yeah. and it, you know <laughs> if you want to think about yeah. that in another way you know we can think of it as self-acceptance like accepting who we are and being satisfied with who we are being you know content that yes I am a good person and you know I am capable and I am strong and I am all these you know wonderful things <laughs> and I don't just mean me you know I mean kind of like the royal way as such you know we're, we're yeah. all we're all capable we're all you know incredible in our own ways and it's the individuality that makes us special but sometimes we see that as you know or in inverted commas being weird you know unique isn't a bad thing you know, but we're, we're almost taught to like not stand out and kind of try and maybe follow the crowd or try and be part of a group as opposed to standing out and being ourselves. And it's completely okay to to be who we want to be, you know, and to, to really kind of live in our own skin and love ourselves. You know, I, I don't know if you feel the same, Ryan, but I think there's kind of maybe a social or cultural kind of norm in that particularly, you know, Northern Ireland, Irish people, Northern Irish people, British people. We're very kind of self-deprecating.
0: Yes, very much so. I agree.
1: You know, we're very much, oh, don't get above your station. And, oh, no, I wouldn't be good at that now. And, you know, we don't like to kind of blow our own trumpet, if you like, and go, and well, actually, yeah. no, I'm
0: quite good at that. Yeah. No, I completely I completely agree with that. I think I sometimes wonder, you know, because I've done a lot of like reading of Canada, like, anthropology and stuff of the last sort of three months. It wasn't in the field I did in, in university or anything like that, but it's it's really, really interesting to kind of read about, especially when you know social life, which I don't. So <laughs> plenty of time. But <laughs> oh, join uh, the club, Ryan. Join the club. <laughs> <us. laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But yeah, I think you made a really good point there. We are very self-deprecating over here on the British Isles in general. Some people attribute it to the weather, you know, I'm not convinced by that explanation fully, but I think it's definitely perhaps could summer But I think that sort of thinking, I think, on a really broad level, I think when you when you view like that sort of thinking through the prism of kind of like social justice and equality and you know all of those kind of what do you say noble human pursuits like I, it's that sort of thinking that upholds a class structure in society. I think you know anyway. Mm-hmm. I think when you really think about. You know, like you just said a phrase there, you know, don't get above your station as well. And I, I do hear that all the time. You know, I hear it all the time, particularly in the older generation. So my grandparents would have said that quite a lot. Parents, maybe less so, but my grandparents, you know, definitely said it a lot. I do hear a lot of, you know, quite a lot of people say it. I'm wondering, is that kind of like a a vestige, if you will, of like the kind of the old classes and the kind of blighted our society it still does and maybe more mm-hmm. subtler forms, but...
1: Yeah, I think there's, I think there's connection there, as you say, Ryan, with like that social mobility as well, you know, equality of opportunity, because if we look back to our grandparents and kind of beyond that, yeah, there was a real lack of opportunity. For sure. Yeah. You know, so it was almost, I want to say beaten into them, you know, it was, it was drummed into them that yeah. you don't get above your station, you do what your parents did, or you stay in your lane,
0: yeah. you choose
1: one career. And you, you know, you have a job for life and you just tick along and you do what you're meant to do. You know, it is very uh, kind of, yeah. there, there was no kind of opportunity as such for people to, mm-hmm. not. I don't want to say better themselves because it's not, you know, people are obviously fantastic no matter where they come from. Like yeah. I'm the same, you know, I come from a working class background, mm-hmm. but I suppose, improve their lives or improve their circumstances in a way that they wish to, or even thinking of it as, you know, fulfilling their dreams or living their purpose, that nowadays we do have much more kind of opportunity. Yes, I yes definitely. there is is there there is still a lot that can be done, of course, and there are certain groups of people and individuals that experience many more barriers, mm. you know, that we can't always speak to, you know, both of us are sitting here as as white, you know, individuals. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we already have one less barrier than certain groups. We already automatically have a level of privilege,
0: yeah.
1: you know, and I think there's there's part of that that we have to appreciate that, yeah, recognize that, but also then ensure that we use our positions to support others that are experiencing additional barriers and do have, you know, kind of those additional challenges and also recognizing the, the intersectionality you know, in that there, people don't just fall neatly into one little box. You know, we don't just go, yes, okay, I working class and I'm white and that's me in those little boxes. But it's, you know, I also live with mental illness. I also have a disability. I also, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is that we have as those barriers. But there are so many other barriers that people face yeah. in terms of you know, socioeconomic deprivation, whether it's, you know, kind of the ethnic background side of it, whether it is disability, whether it's neurodivergence, you know, there are so many things that can kind of affect or influence, you know, how people kind of view the world, their perspective, but also how other people treat them. So I think it falls on all of us as well to provide opportunity where we can, you know, and that. Opportunity isn't just something that we take; it's also something that we can create, and you know, provide for others as well. So, sorry, I went off on a right tangent there, didn't I? I'm really passionate about it. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no, wonderful, no, (laughs)
1: wonderful. But no, I do think I think it's yeah that that social mobility is something that it it is becoming. It's more possible if you like, you know, for us to do things that we want to. Yeah. But at the same time, there is still a lot of work that can be done,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and even in terms of like the education system, you know, and even things like financial education,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, in schools, it's looking at, you know, we didn't get taught how to run a home. We didn't get taught how to, and by that, I mean, you know, I don't just mean like housework and stuff. I mean, you know, bills and finance, yeah, I mean, course, and financial... having a mortgage oh, and shit. You know, we, we don't get taught that money management and, you know, in maths for our GCSEs, it's, you know, Pythagoras and algebra and all that, which I absolutely love, just to say. Uh, but <laughs> I know, weird, but <laughs> but it's all the other things as well. You know, we might get a question on VAT, but when I ask my students, do you know what VAT is? Like, what does it stand for? What does it mean? They're like, I don't know. So then there, there's not that connection made then with the real, real life. You know, it's kind of just very much a theoretical thing that they don't understand that this is actually something that's going to affect you and you're going to be impacted by this in some way in the future. You know, so it's kind of creating that connection between the education system, the equality of opportunity. What are we actually being taught? Do we have role models as well, you know, that, that are relatable? And then also what are we doing to kind of remove the, the barriers that that certain individuals face?
0: Yeah, oh, no. and complete agreement with all of that. I think whenever I worked in a in a residential home for people with severe learning disabilities back in sort of started in sort of I think it was December twenty twenty nine or twenty nineteen. Sorry, to twenty twenty nine hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and I'm a time time traveler, all of a sudden, <laughs> twenty nineteen to January, sort of beginning of twenty twenty one. This was about a year and a half there, and I think I did lots of long overnight shifts and stuff like that. And I think. It was really, really, it taught me a lot, to be honest, because there's there's grown adults in there, you know, you're looking after who a lot of them, you know, are sort of, what would you say, because of their, unfortunately, their congenital learning disability and some, it was a gradient, you know, of course, some had mild and some other mental health problems, but others are profoundly, profoundly severe learning disabilities. And those individuals like taught me a lot, just, just by their being just by who they were. And it taught me kind of like how much kind of a lot of other human beings really depend on the majority of human beings or a majority of human beings having enough compassion, self-awareness, you know, like drive to improve, you know, everything around mm-hmm. us, you know, for the benefit of everyone, you know, they those people kind of depend on, you know, Perhaps even people like us, you know, talking right now, you know, they just depend, their livelihoods depend on us to create, you know, like a really compassionate, you know, loving and functioning society, you know, with, with facilities that can l- let them live their life to the fullest capacity in a way. And I think like that, that's one of the things that really taught me. It was kind of like, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, about, you know, like being vulnerable and dependent on other people, you know, like it kind of taught me that some people like just have no choice but to be vulnerable independent in a way so like mm-hmm. we can talk about it and be like we can talk about the merits of it in a way and that's a totally valid conversation in itself i think you know like it is definitely powerful to you know to let yourself be vulnerable every night again and you know mm-hmm. let the guard down but like some people just have absolutely no choice but to completely depend on other people and i think that, yeah. that was one of the things that was really drove driven home you know to me whenever i was working there and i think it it definitely taught me you know like I was like, yeah, you know, look, you know, self-awareness, compassion, kindness, mm-hmm. you know, drive. All those things are super, super important. And we need to make sure that, you know, that those traits are being expressed as fully as they possibly can in any mm-hmm. given scenario. And they're not the full human psychological experience, obviously, but like they're a very important part of it, I think. And absolutely. And great, yeah,
1: What you say there, Ryan, you know, about compassion, compassion, kindness, they don't cost anything. You know, respect, treating people with dignity. Yeah. None of it, none of it costs money. Sure. You know, it's it's sure. about us, us, like social capital, if you like. That we all have that capacity within us. We all have that kind of potential. So we need to kind of utilize those skills and bring that to every aspect of our lives. You know, it's not just. I suppose, socially, if you want to think of it that way, you know, like maybe with friends or with kind of individuals, even, you know, strangers, you know, when you're getting on the train, are you giving someone a smile? Are you holding a door open for somebody? You know, if somebody drops something, are you going, oh, I'll help you pick that up? You know, those, those little kind of small actions, those little gestures. But it means a lot, you know, when we pass that on and, and almost pay it forward, if you like. Yeah. And there's, I think there's an element of humility that comes with it as well you know, in that sometimes I think on social media, we can see, you know, for for example, like, let's say there's somebody who is experiencing homelessness and, you know, maybe they've been bought some food or, or given something, which is obviously fantastic and extremely kind. that People are, you know, willing to help, but sometimes it almost feels, I don't know what the, the, the word is for it. It almost, it doesn't sit quite right with me though, when it's it's almost more about the person that's giving mm. rather than who they're doing it for. You know, do, yeah. did they ask permission if they could get a photo of what was happening or a video of what was happening? Mm. Are we respecting that other person's dignity then, you know, by plastering them all over social media? Mm-hmm. You know, do we need to necessarily shout about it? And, it? and I'm always conflicted because there's part of me that goes, yes, because it raises the awareness yes. and yes. it continues to drive others to do that. So there's that kind of inspiration piece which I understand and then the other part of me goes but do we need to have it plastered everywhere and you know could we could we just go about it quietly like a lot of people did for years you know so that there's always that kind of like internal struggle I have when it comes to you know that social media and kind of how that links in with like compassion and dignity and kindness. I think it's kind of like an interesting kind of dichotomy but I think going forwards in society it's going to be very interesting how that kind of plays out because obviously you know with the rise of things like TikTok you know everything is on video now yeah you know so is that just going to be normal is that to be expected you know so Ryan how much younger are you than me well I'm I'm 31 I'm
0: 28 years old
1: okay so only a few years yeah but even between like my brother would be 26 Mm -hmm. And I see a difference between my generation, if you like, and his generation. There's only five, six years between us, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be just much more socially acceptable that everything is put all over social media.
0: Yeah, no, you know, yeah, that's exactly what 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 I see as well. I think it is a bit of a a bit a bit of a of a conflict in a way. I hear, I completely hear what you're saying. There, it's probably some a conflict that's probably arisen every now and again in my mind as well. It's kind of like. You know, you know. Do I post this for awareness? does it need to be posted because mm-hmm. it is. It is a valid point that it does raise awareness and things. Yeah, are, is completely valid in this digital age. But you know, am am I doing it to raise awareness or am I doing it to score social capital, uh, as you say, to increase my social capital to get people to admire me? Like you know, like those are all really valid. You know, critiques and you know ways of thinking. You know, whenever you're you're trying to negotiate between you know that that mm-hmm. me as you say. And I think it's something
1: it's something I really struggle with, you know, because obviously living with mental illness and disability and running businesses and
0: mm-hmm. in
1: both the kind of the, the highs and the lows, I think that's that's probably part of it is that when we are maybe sharing something or we are kind of trying to raise awareness, is it's that authenticity piece. And I think people can kind of see through the BS <laughs> you know they, they can kind of see when yeah. people aren't maybe being authentic or or the intention behind it I think that's the crucial part like I know that if I'm if I'm sharing something there has to be the right intention there you know that I'm not just but sometimes you do put things up because you're proud yeah. and yes you're going to get praise for it and that feels lovely yeah. you know it's not to say that You know, we're not putting things out and celebrating because I certainly do, you know, on LinkedIn, I'll put out, oh, I've got this award and I'm so proud and thank you so much everyone for, you know, either your votes or for, for helping or, you know, for supporting me on my journey. So it's not to say, you know, we shouldn't be doing that at all, but I just think again, it's it's almost reflecting before we post anything,
0: Mm -hmm. you
1: know, and thinking about what's my intention behind this and am I also prepared to take the backlash from it? Yeah. You know, because people are always going to have an opinion, unfortunately, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, then sometimes people can, you know, say nasty things, you know, online and Absolutely, yeah, not things that we would necessarily say to people in real life either. You know, we can kind of hide behind the screen or hide behind, you know, like anonymous profiles and things like that. So I think there's that. It, it's a strange it's a strange balance between, you know, the real life connections and and face to face and human connection and then what's happening in the digital space because it definitely has its place. You know, look at look at the way it was through COVID. A lot of people's only human connection was through the digital sphere. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: You know, so what what was COVID like for you as an experience, Ryan? <sighs>
0: Funny, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because whenever I, back whenever I, I was talking about that care home, the the I actually started working in that care home about three weeks before COVID was even in the news. So like uh-huh. I remember, I, I even remember the Italian doctor story. I remember all of that. And then I remember being in England, I was like, okay, it's not here yet. And then I remember a person here and then it spread like wildfire the minute I got here because people just wouldn't wear their masks or anything over here. You know, we had a, we did have a big problem with that over here, mm-hmm. we Still do, but the, so like I it was, a I kind of watched it from its almost it's Genesis in a way, you know, like a, the, the, the kind of the period that I worked in that that our home was kind of the worst period of, of COVID almost today, or at least a large part of the, the, mm. the worst period right from the beginning, you know, to the sort of whenever it was fully here and established, you know, we had to work like scrubs and stuff like that. And so I went through that entire change. And I think COVID was kind of overall, I would say, a bit of a, a strange experience for me. I think I definitely find out more about myself in a way, more of the path that I want to pursue in life. I think I, I, I was kind of thinking about sort of. I was working in a, in a mental health outpatient facility after the care home for a charity called Threshold, and working there kind of made me realize like how much I want to be involved in an enterprise that is changing sort of perceptions of mental health and the way we even conceive what is poor mental health from a very, very mm-hmm. young age, you know? like So that's what got me involved with Maxim. So I want to be heavily involved with encouraging the right cultural values, you know, making sure the feelings of alienation and stigma are pretty much dead by the time young people are older anyway, So like mm-hmm. it's next generation, if they have the enough experience and knowledge and, you know, and all the rest of it, they'll, they'll not have the struggles that some of the people I work with in threshold have, because I was working with people in threshold. Who you just knew it's, it's hard to describe. It sounds quite, you know, quite, quite poignant, but like they, they had been failed really by how mental health was treated and talked about for their lives. So you were meeting people who like maybe, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old, you know, who just completely failed by the, the mental health system that was around them. So, like, whenever they were growing up, you know, poor mental health is probably seen as weird, you know, it's probably, especially, you know, a lot of the guys that I work with struggle with that, you know, like they, they lost a lot of social capital, as you would say, you know, because of their mental health struggles. You know, they, you know, they just didn't relate to it in the proper way because they were never given the tools and the knowledge and the experience to do so. So, mm. the project that Maxim's involved in. Was made me really, you know, is you know, is perfect for for what what I want to do, like in that way, yeah. Because I want to like help, you know, children and young people get the right experiences and values. So by the time they're older, by the time there are those people here, you know, forty, fifty, they're they have a completely different relationship with their own mental health in a way, Mm -hmm. and a much more positive one, you know, English language binaries like can't com- yeah. can't like the a much more kind of you know improved or
1: connected or yeah, even aware relationship. Yeah.
0: All those things. And I think that's COVID kind of pushed me in that direction. I think mm-hmm. all through it was, certainly wasn't like a, i guess a saw in Damascus moment, you know, where I was like <laughs> I know I know all this about mental health. It was definitely a gradual kind of kind of thing yeah i would have to but say.
1: that's that's been it's interesting you know that you say that because so many people that i've spoken to covid has been such a kind of a a turning point you know in their lives that mm-hmm. it either reaffirmed for people what they were already doing as in yes this is my purpose and this is what i'm passionate about but so many people have gone the other way and said well yeah. actually life's too short you know we we yeah. hear it a lot when we're younger we hear older people you know saying all oh, the years start to fly in the older you get and you know you only get one chance at life and we mm-hmm. hear all that when we're younger and we think oh what do you know <laughs> 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 Like you have, you have this thing of like I'm gonna live forever I've got loads of time <laughs>
0: yeah 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 completely agree and that's actually such a such a really a really like, accurate point because like I like obviously there's like quantitative time you know like one o'clock two o'clock and all the rest of it but there's definitely qualitative experience of time as well and i think my as i got a, as I approach 30 now i think like i'm getting closer to it the my qualitative experience of time has definitely changed i hear you whenever i was like 17 18 i was like you know I've got you know i've got the 70 years ahead of me like you know who cares i've got so much time to do whatever but when uh, I closer to 30 that relationship with time has changed a little bit mm-hmm. i'm kind of like oh it's only 12 years until i'm 40 you know Yep. <laughs> you know and i like i just think and it's but but it's only like nine years ago that i was 19 you know like mm-hmm. it's just like it's not as if it was eternally ago so it's just like it is that. No, it does you
1: uh, you go through Is it interesting what you say that ryan about you know coming towards 30 because i was you know in i think a lot of people go through that you know it's almost like the next milestone if you like that the that yeah. like the next chapter of your life and, and another kind of struggle, I suppose, with with reaching those kind of milestone ages, if you like, is again those expectations of other people. Yeah, because you know it's oh, you're not married yet. Oh, have you not got a child yet? Oh, have you you haven't bought a house yet? And you're like, I don't have to have done. Everyone's timeline is different. Like, I don't have to have done everything by a certain age for mm-hmm. me to be on the. Right path and in inverted commas, you know, to be on the the correct path that I'm supposed to be on. Apparently, you know, and again, that I think is a very much a generational shift that's happened too. In that, obviously, the the social kind of circumstances and the the playing field that we're on. Most people, like my brother, he's not on the property ladder yet, and it's going to be a hell of a long time before he's probably able to, yeah. because he's 26. He's doing his chartered accountantship exams at the moment. But where he lives in England, where we're from in the southeast of England, there's no chance.
0: No, there's no chance. There's no chance. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have an auntie actually you who know, lives in England as well. Like, where, she's from here, but she she moved to England, and like you know, where she lives, there's just no chance you're, you're gonna ever get the property. Ladder. you need you need a serious divine intervention from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to even get anywhere near those places. But yeah, I think yeah, and I mean that's definitely true. And I think um, there is that. That cultural talk now of prolonged adolescence you hear a lot um, in certain circles but mm-hmm. I think it is you hear that like 30 is a new 20 and stuff like that it's something I've heard quite a few times but I think I'm not sure if I agree with that fully but it's definitely I think you know like there was immense pressure like like my grandparents for example probably hit all of those traditional as you would say adult milestones by the time they were 25 I would say but the the, the chance to hit those those milestones is is getting kind of like longer and longer and longer. You know, the ch- it's it's waiting longer. People are waiting longer for the chance to hit those milestones if they want to hit them. So, like rethink their relationship with like life in a different way because the the things yeah. grandparents kind of got much easier. You know, it's much more challenging for them and has to be thought about a lot more. And that's that's probably a double edged sword in a way because they're kind of like oh, there is that frustration with. Uh, you know, when am I going to get the property ladder? You know, when am I going to, lay, you know, all those questions. And those are valid, but there's also a window of opportunity in terms of like, who am I really? You know, outside of those milestones that everyone else does, you know, like, you know, who am I? You know, what what am I actually here for? You know, what no, that's it. Yeah.
1: But, I, but I think as well, you know, it's also that, that recognition or that kind of acceptance or understanding even that
0: mm-hmm.
1: we, we don't have to meet those milestones. Yeah, yeah. We don't have exactly, to do yeah. things in a set order. You know, what I mean, you know, it's, it, it's back to that kind of traditional view of, right, you go to university or you go down the route of getting a job and you stay in a career path and then you make sure you meet somebody and you, you, you get engaged and then you get a house and you get married and then you have a child. And, you know, it's like you don't have to do any of those for a start, but you don't have to do them in a particular order. You don't have to, you know do anything really anymore that that you don't want to you know society has changed so much for for the good as well Mm -hmm. in that it's you know we we have much more opportunity and we don't have to necessarily do things just because other people expect us to you know and I think it links back in with what I was saying earlier about that that social expectation you know of what other people think we should be doing with our lives and you're like just you worry about your life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I worry about mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly it. I think, on a sort of really broad level, I think you know, like I had this conversation with um, a transgender individual on one of the episodes, and it's one of the best conversations oh, had. It's the most viewed episode, like quit quite a distance on the podcast, I think. And she actually made a really, really poignant point to me about, or hey, sorry, made a poignant point to me about like, I like they acknowledged really, really intelligent person, like. They acknowledged like the, the kind of like their identity was constrained by the the language structures around them and, you know, the expectations, of the language structures around them. And, you know, you hear that a lot in kind of literature now, like the kind of like all of like the identity. So like the, you know, the changing of the pronouns and like the way we view pronouns, which were taken reflexively like by our parents and grandparents. It was just, he her, he, he, that, that was it, you know, he, him and, you know, all the rest of it. But now we rethink our relationship with that in a lot of ways. And a lot of it is kind of like at its core, a resistance to the structures of the English language, in a way. Okay. Because the English language is really, really, really limited when it comes to a lot of, like, for one, it's emotional vocabulary compared to a lot of other languages. It's diabolically bad. So that's where that's what encourages the emotional repression you see, like, you know, and mm-hmm. the Anglo-Sphere cultures. It's a lot of it's due to the fact that the, the English language is simply not good enough, you know, for, for expressing a lot of, compared to some other languages anyway, Latin sphere and a lot of Asiatic languages as well are much better at communicate in specific emotional states. Mm-hmm. But the same applies to identities as well. I think, you know, I think yeah. a lot of the identities that we have at our disposal within the English language. The reason why we have to have so many, so you'll see like obviously there's a bit there's a long list of you know different gender identities now. But the reason why we probably have to have so many of them in a way is because the English language and its kind of obsessively you know binary and obsessively sort of categorical impulse mm-hmm. that it has it makes it difficult for people to actually articulate what their identity is, just because of the way it's structured. And I think that's that's something that was kind of drove home to me in that conversation. I was like, you know, that's a really good point because yeah, I think I definitely agree with that. Anyway, definitely- yeah,
1: and and I think as well, you know, obviously there's only a certain amount, you know, that I can speak to in terms of that experience, you know, as you know, a cis white woman, mm-hmm. you know, who's who's married to a man, you know, there's only so much that I can kind of. Speak to in terms of that experience, but you know, with friends and colleagues and just connections, you know that that don't perhaps identify as cisgender or you know are trans or are non-binary or you know to me, I couldn't care less. Do you know? I mean, like, and I don't mean that to diminish anybody. I mean, I will take you for who you are.
0: One hundred percent. Yeah.
1: You know, what that's what's important to me. It's do you have a good soul? Are you a good person? Mm. And. You know, when that one thing that really always kind of stresses me out is when people, when I hear people say things like, oh, I just don't like the thought of it. And I go, well, you know what the solution for that is? And they're like, what? And I go, don't think about it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it doesn't affect your life. So why are you worrying about it? Let people be themselves. Let people be who they are and just take people as they come, you know, whatever they want to be called whatever, you know, whoever or whatever they, they want to, I was about to say whoever they want to do, I didn't mean that, I'd say whatever they want to do, <laughs> and whoever they want to be with, you know, or if they don't want to be with anyone, that's also fine. You know, your identity is something, I think, particularly in Northern Ireland, obviously I appreciate, you know, the the irony or kind of the limitations, me speaking as an English person saying this, with obviously the historical context of, of you know, the region, but you know, there's so much kind of wrapped up within identity and the politics around it. But people kind of, I think they've, they have almost forget sometimes is that identity is personal. It's yours. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's
1: not something that anybody can take off of you. You know, yes, people can use it against you and people do use it against others and, and yeah. use it for repression and for kind of, you know, oppression and nasty kind of, acts and things and language use and all that but identity is yours it's intrinsic to you and i think that that is something that needs to be respected you know is it is up to you who you want to be and how you perceive yourself and your place in the world and all we have to do as other humans is respect that and you know, if somebody wants to be known as he, him, not a problem. If they want to be they, them, not a problem. Yeah, You know, you you be you and as long as you're a good person, I, I'm happy to have you in my life.
0: You know? no, Perfect. I couldn't have put it any better, to be honest. This has been a really, really excellent conversation. Katie, I very much enjoyed this. On the final note, to kind of wrap it up, have you any, what, what advice would you give to sort of young people coming through? Because obviously you and I are sort of similar age, like so we're, we're kind of like a different generations certainly to the ones coming through now they're very very much in many ways the first digital natives in a sense mm-hmm. i can remember the first phone i got it certainly wasn't a smartphone that's for sure but i think <laughs> <laughs> it's a great phone that was but the have you any advice to the, that young g- generation coming through you know about mm-hmm. everything we've talked about today if there's one kind of or two things that you would like to to tell them to if they could take away from this video what would you like to drive home to them
1: Yeah, I think kind of two main things is that, you know, getting comfortable and getting to know yourself Mm. and recognising that you are an individual and you don't have to try and fit in with everybody else, you know, that that you can be you and love yourself and be proud of yourself, Yeah, you know, And, and also I'd say off the back of that as well is learning to forgive yourself for mistakes. You know, a lot of the time we really beat ourselves up over things, you know, we can be our own, Worst enemies, our own worst critics, and some of the things we say to ourselves, we would never say to other people. So, you know, using that inner voice—you know, we're we're, the only voice we're never going to escape from—is the voice in our heads. Yeah. So, you know, let's learn to use it kindly. Let's use it wisely. Let's use it compassionately with ourselves and with others. And the final thing, I suppose, is do not be afraid to ask for help. And I know that is kind of a sweeping statement, and it's much easier said than done. I'm not undermining that in any way. It is difficult to do, but it gives you so much in terms of support. And also, the support, you know, people say, Oh, the support that you need. But I always say, Yes, but also the support that you deserve. You know, we're, we're worthy of support. We're worthy of achieving the things that we want to. Yeah. And every single person is worthy. And it doesn't come from that external validation. Yeah. You already have it. Just by being you, you are already worthy and you are enough.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. Very much enjoyed this conversation. It's been a really, really superb start to finish. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. And I wish you all the best in your your business ventures and life and may everything that you're involved in keep going strong, you know, all the rest of it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much,
1: Ryan. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening, everyone, to this week's episode of the Maximize Podcast for Gen Z. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at maxim.app and please follow our LinkedIn profile, Maxim VR and our website, www maximvr.com mm-hmm.